Hi everyone, <laughs> this is SAS Unbound, not really, SAS May, SAS Academy. I'm Anne Dana, your host, as usual, and with me today are two awesome people. There is Andrew Davis, CMO of Paddle, and then there is Julian from SAS Group, our own brand CMO. We're super excited to see you here, and um, we're going to talk about the challenges and the hacks and the strategies of growth for B2B SaaS. So why don't we start with introductions? Andrew, let's start with you maybe. Sure thing, yeah. So um, my name is Andrew. I've got the privilege of serving Paddle as the CMO. Um, joined this business um, about 20 months ago. Um, formerly was a founder of a SaaS business that we raised money for and sold. Um, the acquiring company and the acquiring PE fund then went on a roll-up strategy. And so it was buy side of five acquisitions in two years, um, pulling all of those businesses together. The biggest acquisition was Optimizely. We rebranded that group Optimizely. So I ended up running global brand demand and digital for that group. Um, and we're about 1,500 people um, after those acquisitions and then came back earlier stage to join Paddle. And it's been a real ride over the last uh, last couple of years. Had loads of fun. And um, we help, you know, as many of your listeners will know, we help thousands of software companies globally, helping them scale with their checkout, their pricing, their tax compliance, their payment acceptance. So you can sell anywhere in the world in a completely compliant way uh, and a completely optimized way so you can focus on your product. Awesome. And we were all really enjoying your ride, like seeing it on <laughs> everywhere. What you're doing with Paddle was exciting. Uh, Julian, let's, let's move on uh, with you. Sure. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. So I'm Julian. I'm currently a brand CMO at SaaS Group. And uh, I actually first started my career in the music industry. So I worked at Universal Music for several years and then at one point decided to co-founder a company with uh, two co-founders and we launched a product called Tower. Um, Tower is a popular developer tool, makes it easier um, and much more convenient for developers to work with Git and we bootstrapped the business for over a decade and then uh, sold it at the beginning of 2021 to SAS Group. I then decided to stick around and move to the group level and then together with my co-CMO Tim Hikes we created a central marketing team. We're currently 15 marketing experts and have about 20 more marketeers in our portfolio companies. And together we work on all things marketing and try to support the companies in marketing. Awesome, thank you. So it's great to, to have you here also because you were founders, you, you had your own company, so you know, you've kind of struggled through it yourself. So you will be able to also, um, yeah, maybe talk about your own experience with those companies. But yeah, I think we can move on to some of the questions that we had. We had quite a few from the audience that were sent to us. So yeah, first one was what strategies have worked for you in 2023 for achieving growth? It's a crucial year, lots of downturns, lots of nervous founders out there. So. How did you cope with that and what worked for you, Andrea? Oh, I thought you were going to go to Julian first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think the, the, the first rule here is that, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And so what might have worked for us doesn't mean it works for everybody. Um, my instinctive answer to this question, whenever it comes up, regardless of 2023 and time period, 
um, is that I, I truly believe that when you have a detailed understanding of who your customer is and how they buy and how they decide, then almost anything you can do to reach them becomes accretive. And the biggest problem that most marketers face is they don't take enough time to understand in detail the process by which and the perspective by which their target buyer views the position in the market, what they're doing, what that job's to be done is, what that challenge is that you're solving. Um, and so for me, again, in 2023, top of my list is how can I spend more time with customers? How can I spend more time with mm. prospects? How can I understand in a more detailed level? Because from that comes all kinds of insight around message, around forums and channels, um, around kind of what are the trigger points to action. Um, and so very boring answer that no one will be writing down and taking back to their day job, except every one <laughs> of us should, myself included, because none of us understand yeah. our customer enough. Hi, that's perfect. Uh, Julian, what about you? I totally agree. Like in general, there's no no um, one growth strategy that fits them all. I mean, we can. I now have the opportunity to work with a range of companies, so that's nice to see what works for this company might not work for the other one. Understanding ICP is crucial. Who, who is your customer? Who's your audience? Um, what we uh, did now with a couple, uh, maybe to be a bit more concrete, with a couple of uh, first companies uh, that we went from a pure product-led growth to a more hybrid approach. So we started hiring the first salespeople, especially for companies that want to go from you know, seven figures ARR to eight figures ARR. And so we've actually seen success there this year, despite the economy. Otherwise, no surprises. Like if, if you do good marketing, we still have see strong growth in content marketing and SEO, despite the AI hype and the challenges um, in email marketing or partnerships. Something we do want to tackle next year is localization for a couple of our companies. That's another growth lever that we see. But unfortunately, there's not the, the magic formula yeah. to, uh, to suddenly skyrocket your growth this year. Just, just yeah. to you know, double down on what Julian's saying there, I, you know, one of the privileges we have at Paddle is we see the data behind 34,000 businesses, about 29 billion of ARR. Um, and we also get to do some really interesting research with other partners. So one of the one of the pieces of research we're doing right now is with OpenView, which is mixing our data with OpenView Ventures data. Um, and the highest, the, the largest correlant with high growth that we have seen in that mix of data is people who are measuring PQAs or PQLs, measuring product qualified leads or product qualified accounts, which speaks, you know, for the marketing geeks in the audience, speaks to exactly what you've been saying, where you've got a self-serve product-led bottoms-up model where you are serving a user at a lower price point, getting involved, showing value, and you have the ability to sell in a larger team plan or enterprise plan on the top of that. So people who are, who are monitoring PQAs and PQLs was the number one correlate with high growth in that data. Uh, I think it's a really exciting trend where people aren't choosing one method or another, they're recognizing that, that both, we can be greedy, both is good, and particularly learning from the best of both. And for me, the product-led move, what that's shown us is that people don't want to be demoed and pitched. They want to actually try something. And the users within the organization want to try something. But being customer-centric to larger enterprise buyers is giving them a sales rep to help them juggle the buying committee and the procurement teams and the legal teams and all of the different veto rights that sit around that table. And so being customer-centric is both of those to, be, to users, giving them something to go and try, and to enterprise buyers, giving them a process that they can actually wrestle through and make a decision. 
Thank you. I think that's a great answer. Not boring at all. So <laughs> you did great. <laughs> so I think a good chunk of the audience um, is still bootstrapped founders, even though we moved on from solely buying bootstrap businesses. But one of the questions was, um, what could bootstrap businesses with limited resources do regarding growth strategies? And is hyper growth possible for bootstrap startups? Because no matter how much we say overnight success really doesn't happen overnight, a lot of people believe it. So does it actually happen? And what can bootstrap businesses do to achieve it? Julian, let's start with you. Okay. <laughs> Mix it up. Well, I think that the beauty of bootstrapping is that obviously limited with cash, so that forces you to be creative, you know, slightly scrappy maybe to a certain degree, but also very focused. And um, so maybe one way to tackle is to initially focus on a very niche market. At least that's what we did. So that automatically makes it easier to you know find and address your audience. So at Tower, we, we started with developers that use version control and then the version control system Git, and then we only launched on Mac. So I exactly knew who I'm talking to. I knew where I could find them and then, you know, target my marketing. And then only later, for example, we rolled out on Windows and, and uh, approached that market. So that could be one approach. What we also did is we handpicked our first users, like our beta users to have people in the right markets at the key companies already testing our product, people that maybe spoke at conferences or blogged, and then they really helped us to, to then scale. Once we launched a public beta, we quickly went to 40,000 testers. And then once you launch and have a, you know, okay conversion rate, you will do well. And, um, yeah, just be unconventional, like look for opportunities. Like we didn't have a budget to sponsor conferences, but we still found ways to be present at conferences without paying for it, just just really be creative. Because what we often see now when we also talk to venture-funded businesses, that they often then can get distracted, they lose focus, or they go after vanity metrics. And I think that's that's a nice thing about bootstrapping. In terms of hypergrowth, I think it's challenging, but possible. There are a few examples. For example, Paddle acquired um, Profitware, right, for 200 million, and Patrick bootstrapped that company to eight figures in ARR. So. There you go. Yeah. That's a very impressive growth, but there's also ConvertKit who quickly scaled to a significant amount of revenue or Lemlist as an example. So mm -hmm. I think it is possible, but maybe take a step back and ask yourself why you, like, is that the the goal? Like why, why do you need or want hyper growth? Like, is that even necessary or can you just, you know, focus, have organic, healthy growth on a steady scale? Right. Andrew, what do you think? You, yeah, you you saw it yourself. I, I think what Julian's mentioning there about do you even want it is the first question to start. Um, there are many examples of venture-backed companies that have achieved hyper growth. There are as many, if not more, examples of companies that have tried for that, either achieved it or not achieved it, and it's killed them. And so, whether you're bootstrapped or not, deciding what you're optimizing for is really important. And I tend to see that there are kind of a couple of different phases and in the early days you should be um, optimizing for learning and insight over growth or scale um, you don't need repeatability at the beginning what you need is to learn how your customers buy can they buy repeatedly do they stay with you over time because if you don't learn those lessons your scale is going to be completely um, 
a house of cards. You're going to keep acquiring new customers and it's not going to deliver the value they need and they're going to churn. Um, so I think deciding when to pursue hypergrowth is a really critical decision and many founders and their ambition want to do that too soon. And so being really patient and walking through the hard yards of, you know, do we really understand this? Do customers stick to the upgrade? Um, you know, is there a lifetime value here that's worth building a business around is utterly critical before you get to hypergrowth. Um, in terms of can bootstrapped companies do, do it? Of course, yeah, we see lots of examples around that can do it. But I strongly believe that you have to survive long enough to succeed. And um, it is just, you know, it's not worth many of the businesses of people listen, looking on this call, listening on this call. It, it's not worth sacrificing your business on the altar of trying to achieve hyper growth over the next couple of quarters. Um, so, yeah, I strongly believe slow and steady wins the race. And when you've got enough confidence and conviction across all of your, you know, your key fundamentals to then pour some fuel on that, um, whether that is reinvesting, um, whether that is loan, whether that is venture finance, whatever it looks like, um, then I think there's some really interesting opportunities there. But doing that too early can be can be the breaking rather than the making of you. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, since we started talking like about why people buy, um, there was this question, a marketing chart report says one in four people buy based on influencer recommendations. So do you think personal branding and empowering team members to become brand ambassadors in social media and to add to awareness and credibility? Andrew, let's mix it up. <laughs> so as marketers, too often, we don't put ourselves genuinely in the shoes of the person who's buying. I do not remember the last time I downloaded an ebook, read that ebook, then an SDR called me based on you know the, uh, the the lead form I'd filled in. I responded. We had a call on my mobile phone. Um, I agreed to a fifteen minute demo chat. They pitched me a whole bunch of stuff, then had another one with their sales rep to talk about pricing. And then once we got through all of those things, then my interest in the product was so delightful that I wanted to go ahead and have a proper conversation about using it. Yeah, absolutely. I talk to people, I WhatsApp people, people who are in my position, people who are in positions that I want to be in about what tech they're using, about what vendors they're using, about what suppliers they trust. If I ever need my first, yes, I'll Google, but you know, my first choice is to go to people in my network. I've got a very strong network and I trust their referrals. Um, so yes, 100%, I believe that the influencer is one of our primary strategies when it comes to, you know, when it, when it comes to awareness and also consideration. Um, I think your question, though, was about should we be empowering team members to become brand ambassadors on social? So firstly, mm -hmm. default, yes. Um, but I think we have to be careful over this because, A, there are some team members where that is not their flow. That is not something that comes naturally to them. Um, and there will be other elements of the marketing mix that come much more naturally. And so I don't think this should be a blanket yes. I think it's about finding those people in your teams who are naturally gregarious, outgoing, uh, easy to talk to, want to be out, are doing this in their day job anyway, are doing this in their personal life anyway. That's the people you want to really find. Um, and the second thing is, I strongly believe this is about working with influencers who already have a right to speak to your market rather than just building that yourself should be your first priority, but it's always going to take longer. And so making friends and finding relationships with people who are already speaking to your target market, um, I think is the way of getting there faster. Um, usually costs a bit more money or it takes more time um, in terms of making those friendships. Um, but if, if I was in a founder's shoes right now, I would be mapping 
the 10 people on Twitter and LinkedIn or whatever the social channel is uh, that speaks to your market um, who are talking our language, singing off the same hymn sheet and, uh, and are speaking to the market we want to serve. And I'd be finding ways to get them on webinars, to take them out for dinner, to learn from them, to jump on a call with them, um, because they probably have, there's probably some mutual benefit of working together. Uh, so yeah, 100% yes from me. Don't just think about team members, think about people outside your organization too. Great. Uh, what, Julian, what do you think? Again, can just agree. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, for example, with Tower, when we back then initially launched, that that, that was the approach when I said we handpacked our first users or testers to to have these influencers to help us really kick things off. And in terms of companies and, and, and teams, also agree like it should never be forced. Like team members should always have the choice to participate. If they do, you know, they can give you more authenticity and, and reach. That that's great. Um, we have examples in SAS Group, like, for example, Dirk Sama, like, uh, he's part of our M&A team and he's very active on, on LinkedIn, pumping out great content, has his own newsletter um, and built a very impressive following that's um, nicely reflecting also on SAS Group, bringing on leads, uh, etc. So it, it can definitely work. We also see it at companies we acquire, that's often the founders. Um, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, if you do lots of marketing from your team and they build up these accounts, they might leave one day <laughs> and take their audience with them. Um, so I've also seen a few companies now where they slowly walk this back. Like everything was focused, let's say, on the founder's Twitter channel. Um, and it had like 10 times the amount of followers and audience. And now they try to actually shift that attention to, to, the, to the brand. What's really okay. interesting then is the opposite of that is a possibility too. So you could hire new people onto the team who have some of that as well. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see the, you know, just in the same way that some people might leave, um, it's becoming a key, key hiring criteria in some companies. If you look at perhaps what Lavender are doing in sales tech over in the US, you know, they are actively hiring people who are speaking to sales leaders and salespeople because that's what their tool serves. Um, and so they're, they're hiring creators into marketing and into sales roles. So yeah, it definitely can go both ways. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think we started a couple of questions back talking about PLG and sales driven growth. So there was the question, we are a self-serve PLG oriented business, but sometimes it feels like we're stuck in the, if we build it, they will buy it kind of narrative. Does PLG work as is? What are the other ingredients that we could add to the mix to really grow? Julian, what do you think? Yeah, the ship it, ship it and they will come, that usually never works. Um, yeah. PLG does work, but you really need to be close to your user base, pretty much what, what Andrew also said earlier. And um, I mean, there's the single questions like, okay, look at your competing products. You know, they might have like equal pricing, promotion, quality. Like, why does one outsell the other? Or why would a user uh, choose one over the other? And the question usually is, like, who uses? these products like who are the users what's their profile what's the the icp and there's a great book i, I read a couple of years ago by kathy sierra it's called badass making users awesome that you really help your users to you know to find this and to see that value in your product so um uh, yeah it does work but you really have to focus on it and, and, and invest in it all right andrew um i'm not sure who the quote should be attributed to um but i fully believe and I've seen in my experience that first time founders obsess about the product and second time founders obsess about distribution. 
Um, I'd much rather work with a, uh, a slightly mediocre product that has an insane distribution strategy uh, and, and method um, than the opposite way around, an insane product that has a very medi mediocre distribution. Um, particularly in the world we are in now, where no code, low code, AI, GP, uh, you know, APIs for, for Gen AI, um, it's so easy to get a product to market comparatively. Therefore, the battleground is distribution. The battleground is attention. And cut through is the biggest challenge. Most companies who are on this call probably have a high degree of commercial risk and a low degree of technical risk. Actually, can they build the thing they want to build is probably reasonably de-risked. Can they reach a market sustainably is probably reasonably high risk. Um, and so I, I think it should be a massive focus of any PLG business. We should never be in the uh, in the rut to build and they would come. Um, and then it becomes, well, you know, as Julian's pointed out, who are we building for? And I love the story you told there about being extremely focused um, on the kind of the subdivision of the ICP that you went after in order to be able to get some resonance and get some responses. Um, you know, in our in our world at Paddle, we have a, a self serve motion and a sales motion. Um, so you know, we have you know, hundreds of companies every month who go live on Paddle um, without ever talking to a sales rep. Um, we also have a sales motion where we're reaching out to people, um, but. We shouldn't also believe that build it and they will come on our self-serve motion. So we are always actively um, building messaging, building content, benchmarking data, events, a huge number of tactics in order to drive an increasing number of customers towards our self-serve process. Now, I think there's a few things that are really important to pull out here. Um, the, the, the first one is that uh, um, you need to separate in your marketing mix, demand capture and demand creation. So in most markets, especially if you have a new product into an existing market, there is a latent demand. Um, so for us, the latent demand is when a business starts scaling to multiple territories and faces tax fines for not doing tax correctly in different regions, they go looking for a solution. That is latent demand that we have to be prepared for, ready for, have good search results for, have good um, content for, benchmarks for, case studies for, that will move people into our self-serve motion. But if we just rely on that, we will not achieve our growth objectives. And therefore, we have to have demand creation, which is going out and actively talking to founders. I'm not saying necessarily one-to-one, -one, but through our content, through our events, through our messaging, um, through our partners, educating founders that on their dream of building the company that they want to go and build, there are hidden challenges. Uh, there are champagne problems to growth that they are not yet budgeting for or thinking about. And we can help solve those ahead of time. And so we need to go out into that problem space that's ahead of where the current founder is thinking. Um, so be very careful to make sure you split between demand creation and demand capture, because most PLG businesses early stage are only focused on demand capture, only focused on, you know, maybe some pay-per-click ads on intent, maybe some you know, search terms that are gathering people who are searching. Um, and in order to properly scale, most businesses will also need a demand creation muscle as well as a capture muscle. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we have uh, a couple of uh, new questions that were just asked. Uh, the first one is to better communicate your customer findings to the team. Do you work with personas or another method? Julian, what do we do? <laughs> Depends on the company and the team. But, um, more and more actually. Let's do Tower. Into, uh, tower, well, yes, as I said, because we decided to go so niche, like uh, we, we automatically created a, this persona, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then over time expanded. And then also sometimes you notice like, oh, actually now designers also have to use version control. So they, they're coming into play. It's no longer just a, a developer uh, tool. Um, 
the companies we we've acquired so far we often see that they actually did not think about it that much they're more like kind of like stumbled into it and now the teams uh, that are in place are starting with setting up personas but it depends on on the product and the market all right andrew what about you uh, there's a lot of hate and a lot of love around personas, so I'm not going to jump into that argument. I think that smart people love going to the source. And so one of the ways I think about this is how can we open up the sources of that data for people to go and find themselves rather than creating a battle card or a persona that's a characterization of what we found. So, for example, we use Gong. So every one of our sales calls and customer calls is recorded with permission. Um, and then we analyze that data. And there's some very nice AI tools within Gong in order to pull different elements and attributes of what people are saying giving my marketing team complete access to go and pull their own, own queries there is a, a way of us getting very close to the customer in a way that you know someone sitting there in product marketing and documenting that into a, into a persona doc just would not capture. The same with self-reported attribution. Anytime anyone does an action with us, fills out a form, subscribes for something, we'll ask them, how did you hear about Paddle? Making sure those open text fields get pumped into Slack and that someone's doing a, a, a quick summarization of those on a monthly basis to categorize them is a way of exposing source back to our customer, back to our users, making sure, uh, to back, back to our, our marketers, making sure my team are on webinars, are going to events, we're at SAS stock next week in Dublin, whole bunch of my marketing are going there, not just to do marketing, but to learn, to meet with customers. We're meeting as many customers as we can around dining tables and at, at pubs and drinking a pint of Guinness. Um, so I, I strongly believe that although personas could be a helpful communication tool, that exposing people to the source of that information is, is the way you can really get gold without it being abstracted away through a process of persona creation. Mm. I mean, to, to add to that, like many companies require their teams, no matter which position, to spend a certain amount of time, um, especially in the onboarding phase, but also later on to actually do customer support. Uh, it's another yeah. beauty of bootstrapping. You will have to do customer support. Like I did customer support uh, together with my co-founder for many, many years. And so we didn't have to write personas because we talked every day to the users, learned about their pain points um, and so on. So yeah, absolutely agree with Andrew here. Thank you. All right. Uh, there is another question. Um, what are the trends nowadays regarding paid and free marketing channels? Is it still true that you just have to put money into ads as this is the only high impact way or blog posts, case studies and overall building the brand awareness is becoming more impactful? Andrew, what do you think? We create these false dichotomies, don't we? Is it this or is it that? You know, it's always both. Um, and it depends on what you're trying to achieve and, and where your blockers are. Um, so the way I would think about this is, A, number one, we need to have benchmarking, content, research, perspective, points of views that are so powerful that people will search for them, they'll share them, they'll use them in an organic only sense. Okay, so that's the benchmark, it has to be good enough. Then our job as marketers should be to understand the audience that we are serving, not just, you know, it's this number of companies, but who are the 5,000 people in the world who can make a decision on this product? Who are the 400 companies in the world who we think are the perfect fit for what we're doing? And then 100%, I think we should be using paid channels as well as others to make sure they come across our content, our findings, our people. And so, you know, and, and paid doesn't have to just be ads, right? Paid can be running a steak dinner in Amsterdam for a bunch of people who you know are target users of your company. So, you know, I think about this from a much more holistic perspective, which comes back to the question of how, the, how do they decide? And if they decide through meeting someone or talking to a friend, then you need to create those forums where they can meet someone or talk to a friend. If they do buy from seeing an ad, then great. 
Um, but I'm much more interested in using paid as a method of people getting an introduction to our business that can build trust and credibility than getting an, than getting kind of a direct response where we're asking them to get a demo. I just, uh, you know, I don't see that work very often. It works when you happen to reach someone who is in a decision process right now. And so that might be one in a hundred or one in a thousand. And it's often worth it to still do that. But generally what you're doing is getting people to a first touch within your wider ecosystem. It's introducing them to our free product, introducing them to a report we published, introducing them to a virtual event we're running, introducing them to one of our web series that we're running on Paddle Studios. Um, so I think paid is very powerful for those things because it also is a bit unexpected because most people, when they click on an ad or see an ad, they're expecting to be sold to. And when they're getting value from that interaction rather than being sold to, that can completely change the trust game. Okay. <clears throat> Julian, what about us? What do we do, paid ads? <laughs> we do. Do we but... believe in them? <laughs> um, certain channels are getting more challenging, definitely. But as Andrew said, it's it's always a combination. It's not the one or the other. And um, if you combine it in the right way, then, then, then that's ideal. And also it depends on the stage you're at. So initially, you might not have a budget, right? So you have to uh, use a different approach. And then over time, you can slowly nurture channels with an additional budget and um, the and it also doesn't scale linear right many people expect like okay i increase my paid budget and automatically <laughs> my my um my revenue will go up because everyone will click on this link immediately sign up <laughs> and convert that would be an ideal world but yeah. it's, it's not so definitely yeah. a mix and also look into the the long-term benefits of often paid you know it stops when you stop uh, putting money into it but if you combine it uh, then with value or or bring help it to bring people on that journey like Andrew said like okay you give them value and and now they're in touch with your company but it's not yet about a demo and so on but you you already can get them into an, in, in a conversation and then keep that going um, and then that no longer has to be paid um, a paid channel yeah. Just, just to stop on that one more moment, I think something that I see a bunch of times in early stage adding bootstrapped environments, which is a mistake that's so easy to fix, is that you look at your data and you say, okay, I have 100 people hit this demo form or this self-serve sign-up form, one converts through. Therefore, that's great. If I go and spend some money and get 1,000 to look at it, then I'm going to get 10x what I saw before. Inbound and outbound, paid and organic, do not convert at the same rate. And so, like, if so, if someone's come to your, you know, your self-serve sign-up form right now and you're not spending money, they probably have seen your Twitter, they've been following you, they've probably done some research, they've probably been referred there by someone else or done a Google search that shows they have intent. If they come there because they click on something that was paid in front of them, none of those things or many of those things are not true. And so do not build a model in your business where you're extrapolating from your organic conversion and believing that paid will do the same. It just simply won't. It's a different motion. Okay, thank you. Thank you, guys. So since we started talking about paid and like the cost of acquiring your customers, there was a question about that. Um, since the cost of customer acquisition went up 50% according to HubSpot research, how are you adjusting to this change? And what's your strategy? Lowering uh, CAC or doubling down on customer retention and upselling? Andrew? So a few things here. Firstly, we in our data sets, we see a very strong correlation with growth for those who are actively selling into their existing customer base. So there is an upsell, cross-sell, expansion type pathway. Um, those also tend to be very low 
CAC methods of driving expansion. Um, to kind of double click on that, we also see a very, very strong correlation with faster growth with those who have a multi-product strategy or an add-ons strategy, where there are multiple different things you can sell. We have a whole you know, team division working on pricing and packaging optimization. So the first thing I'd say here is yes, 100%. When you have a customer, you should be thinking very hard about what you are packaging in front of them and what the expansion process is for them. Um, and you know, often the first maybe five, 10 million of, of revenue is focused on a single product, right? You've got one product, one focus, you're selling it to a single market. And then normally from maybe 10 to 50 or 10 to 100 million, you're now having to experiment with different add-ons, different other levers of growth. And then normally it's very, well, it's very rare to go beyond 80, 90, 100 million of revenue without a multi-product strategy. Because then you've got the levers to drive maximum enterprise value from your current customers. So first thing I'd say is think about multi-product and think about add-ons as early as you can. It doesn't mean you go and execute on them, but think some add-ons are completely low, no cost to you. Like suddenly charging for premium support, charging for implementation, charging for you know enterprise features that people want. Some of those things don't cost you any more in product and engineering, but give you a way of charging a customer that is more willing to pay for that service than other people are. So look for things in your in your product set, features that less than 40% of people use, and those that use them have a high willingness to pay for that feature. Separate those out and monetize them separately. So the first thing is absolutely focus on your customers, absolutely focus on packaging and your, your and pricing your products so you've got upsell uh, and cross-sell pathways. And then, you know, yes, you said, you know, customer acquisition cost has gone up a lot. Um, it's gone up a lot for everybody, um, but I, I think that one of the strategies here is to be bold. I think the most dangerous position is to be in the mediocre middle. If you're doing what everyone else is doing, then yeah, it is really hard and CAC is going up. If you're trying to do stuff that is swinging for the fences, if you're if you're once every couple of a couple of months, once every couple of quarters doing something that peaks above the parapet and genuinely stands out in your market, I think that's a much more effective way than constantly being mediocre month on month. Um, and so I think you need to think about customer, customer acquisition holistically rather than just on a per deal or per lead basis. Thank you, Andrea. Julian? Yeah, it should be a balanced approach, right? Like often people are so focused on new business and new MRR, and that's the only number they, they look at. They, uh, they stop paying attention to customer retention, upselling opportunities that Andrew mentioned. And so there should always be a mix. We see that, that people only focus on MRR. They look at overall MRR, but they don't realize, oh, it's actually driven by expansion MRR, for example, in a case. So the existing customers, you know, add more seats or whatever your model is, upgrade to a higher plan. That's great, but you're actually not increasing your user base. So just really keeping a close close eye on, on, on these segments and then um, make sure to, to give appropriate attention to to each and one thing i don't know andrew if you see that then if you're you know work with so many SaaS companies is also pricing like price increases often and that includes my previous company we we shied away from price increases everybody is super afraid right and uh, now then we look at our portfolio companies the ones that did it it's like every time we did it it's like yep <laughs> great, great decision and the right decision. And so that's often also forgotten that's possible. You know, everything, inflation, everything is getting more expensive, but certain yeah. SaaS tools are not. So um, that, that might yeah. be another, um, yeah. another uh, topic to look at. We, we've got a, 
we've got a bunch of methodology around that that we're happy to share with anyone who's interested who wants to do a price increase, even down to kind of the emails that we draft and send on behalf of the hundreds of people we've helped do, do this for. So if you're interested in price increases, I can link you, you know, maybe just, just ping me on LinkedIn or ping Anna and then she'll pass it through to me. Um, we can share you on a bunch of resources about pricing uh, and price increases, how to think about them and how to communicate them. Because often the problem is not the increase, it's how it's communicated. Um, and there are some examples recently of some very badly communicated price rises. Just as a data point to encourage everyone to do exactly what Julian's saying, when we look at the last six years of data, we see um, those who have changed their price on a quarterly basis, they've adjusted pricing or packaging on a quarterly basis, they have a 103% lift in ARPU or ARPA, uh, average revenue per user, average revenue per account, versus those who've never changed it. Okay, and it's about a 60% lift on those who've changed it annually. Now, what's really interesting about that stat is it isn't even necessarily a good price change. It is just testing. It's building a muscle for adjusting, pricing and packaging on a quarterly basis, being willing to test and learn. And by that, you start to drive up average revenue per user because you start to learn what the willingness to pay. So 100% great. Thank you. All right. Uh, okay, we have a couple more from the audience. How do you turn a SaaS in a competitive MarTech landscape from a nice to have to a must have? Andrew, let's maybe continue with you. <laughs> Um, yeah, happy to take this way. You know, Idiom, the company I co-founded, was a MarTech. It was a personalization business. Um, and it was a solution in search of a problem for too many years. We had this very cool thing, and we didn't know who to sell it to and how much they'd pay for it. And therefore, we were floundering for multiple, multiple years. Um, there is a, a framework that I can link people to if it's interesting that was really helpful to us by Tim Rister at Corporate Visions, which talks about rather than selling more features, you need to go and uncover the unconsidered needs, the unquantified costs that sit in your buyer. So for us, we went and found what were the unconsidered needs that sat behind personalization. So we were competing with people like Adobe Test and Target, like a thousand, 20,000 times bigger than we are, right? But what we had that was different was we had a natural language processing based personalization engine that supplied interest data into it. So most personalization engines, they're rules based, and you as a marketer choose, say, if this, then that. So it's segment-based, it's rules-based. And you have to provide the data from your own engine. And that's where most big personalization projects at large enterprises failed because people bought a nice shiny engine but realized it was the data that was a problem. If I was saying the same thing to Julian and Anna because I only had poor data, then the personalization actually wouldn't work. You'd be bundled into the same segment. And so what we were able to bring was interest data, a new data set on the, the intent of all of those individual users when we were serving a Salesforce or an IBM or Intel or one of the companies we served. Um, and we were able to tell the story of the unconsidered need. And we were able to quantify the cost of not considering that need for them. So for me, turning a SaaS in a competitive MarTech landscape from a nice to have candy floss to a must have a painkiller or a vitamin, um, a lot of that is about thinking about your unique solution, your unique capabilities and how that links to something unconsidered and how you can make the status quo of that target buyer unsafe, untenable, how you can make that cost unnecessary uh, and sell into that rather than just compete on features. Thank you. Julian? Yeah, always use that methodology that you just use, Andrew, like the vitamin versus the painkiller, right? Like a vitamin, mm -hmm. it's improving things, but it's, yeah. it's not essential, right? You don't die if you don't take your vitamins for a day, but a painkiller, like if you're in pain, you want that to go away. And if you're able to go to your audience and be like, Hey, 
if you have this problem or this pain and my product will take it away then also just selling becomes so much more easier you might not even have to sell because it's it's so obvious like the con conversation is is uh, much simpler so yeah your core values pretty much have to assign uh, like align with your audience and um, then you have to communicate this so product and marketing have to have to really work hand in hand and um, then this is possible and then also considering that maybe a vitamin for one person could be a painkiller for a, a different audience, right? So you can also ask yourself, okay, are we actually focusing on the right audience uh, to take tower again, for example, for certain developers, for certain audience, it's, it's, it's a vitamin. It's a nice to have, they, they can work on the command line and, and for others, um, it's definitely a painkiller. And then obviously that's the, the, the market you want to focus on. Yeah, thank you, Julian. So another question was about repositioning strategies and how to tackle challenges faced when repositioning your brand to a different market. So how would you do it, Julian? Let's start with you. Maybe not the, the biggest expert in that space, but when um, hmm. we did make a, <laughs> a few mistakes there in our previous company, for example. So as I mentioned, we focused on 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 Mac developers initially. And then we had it figured out, it worked great. We knew who we needed to talk to, the messaging, they're very um, sensitive for, you know, for good design, uh, which channels to use. And then we developed Tower for Windows and we were like, yeah, awesome. We're just gonna go on the Windows market, do the same thing. And we were double our user base, right? And that did not work at all. Like it was such a different audience, different channels where you could find them how you know they had just different things they focus on so my advice here is just if you're entering a new market or a new segment don't just try to replicate what worked previously but really spend the time again going back to then meeting your new future customers in that segment and in that, that market and really understand them and not just assume or they will just be you know behaving or having the same expectations as um, the market you were in previously Okay, thank you. Andrew? Yeah, not much to add apart from, um, I think it's just really important to discern between product expertise and your current market expertise. It's so easy to be serving one market with a product and think you know everything about both. And then you suddenly move that product into a new market and you confuse the confidence you have at that market intersection, product market intersection. You confuse what bit of that is product knowledge and what bit of that is market knowledge. And so you apply the same. Um, yes. To Julian's point, you've got to reinvent it. You've got to work out the new vocabulary, the new terminology, the new ways they think about it, the new value prop, the new KPIs that they're trying to drive on their side. The same product can be sold into two separate segments and be described in different ways, be driving a completely different KPI, be measured in a completely different way and be bought in a completely different way. And so I think the biggest lesson is just to be really open-minded. Thank you. All right, we have a few more that are like a little bit more personal, um, a little bit more about you and the way you work. And the first one, uh, if you could instantly fix or improve something about how your team operates, what would it be and why? Julie, do you want to take this? <laughs> Probably just in encouraging them to say no more often and, and, and really <laughs> prioritize instead. So especially might be a bit special to, to our team because we work with currently, you know, a portfolio of 16 different, 16, 17 different companies. So obviously it's, it's different than if you're like in one company and, you know, one single team. So the, just the influx of 
request and so on is really high and just defend your time and your calendar. And uh, I always usually advise them to, to block out time in the calendar as focus time because otherwise it was always be taken by somebody. And um, I, like when we started, I wrote a communication guide for the team. Like just the, I think often when it comes to communication, people just talk about tools, like should it be Slack or Twist or email? And I don't think it's about the tool, but it's about managing expectations like how quickly am i expected to respond am i you know expected to be online all day or can i actually have focus time and you know close down slack and so on just we're working on this actively including me there's always room for improvement too okay thank you andrew what about you yeah i mean when you ask the question how what would i fix or improve about my team i think the first thing i think is that any problem in my team is is my fa failure first right and so, you know, any problem I want me to fix is it's my problem to fix first. Um, and so probably a bunch of the problems I see in the team are directly related to the shadow sides of my strength, the weaknesses of my mix. So it will be, you know, running too fast, saying yes to too many things like Julian says. It'll be not stopping and bringing enough people on board with the clarity behind what we're doing. Those would all be challenges. And so, so and, and I think at a business of our scale, cross-functional communication and cross-functional alignment becomes insanely important and is the path to speed. In the early days, it's easy to see speed as a function of how many hours a few key individuals put in. Um, and that's true in the early days. You work insanely hard, you push things forward. As you grow, suddenly do people all know where we're going and are they in sync on how we get there becomes the path to speed. And it's very easy for a lot of people to be doing a lot of very hard work in slightly different directions and therefore for the net gain to be significantly reduced. Um, and so, yeah, uh, those are some of the problems that I, that I want to go and fix and they directly result on you know, problems that I have rather than my team has. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, there is another question. Um, if you weren't a marketer, who would you be? Julian, a musician? <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> I always wanted to study music, actually. And then uh, I, I moved to the US and I noticed how many talented musicians there are and uh, had a lot of respect. And then um, I, I also was interested in business, studied business, and then, then you know ended up working in the music industry. So I kind of like went in there. But maybe actually going back to the, to the roots and, and, and become a musician and, and study music, yeah, I'd be open for that. Did you share your music on our Slack? No, I'm currently not doing any, and, and thankfully, when I did most of my, my music, and, and maybe slightly older, there, there wasn't any, you know, Facebook and so, or YouTube around, so that's no. Okay. <laughs> uh, Andrew, what about you? Um, I'm an accidental marketer. I became a marketer because it was the need in the business when we founded a business. Um, and so, you know, I think post being a marketer, I'll be back at a bigger founder again. Um, I love that process of zero to one. I also love the process of working with other companies who need an advisor to come and poke and push and give a perspective. And I love that role too. So yeah, I'd either be a founder again uh, or I'd be advising founders. Okay, pretty cool. All right. And well, uh, it's just a very expected question. What advice would you have for aspiring marketing leaders? Andrew? Again, it's super obvious and I feel like it's just we have to constantly remind ourselves of common sense. And I'm talking to myself more than anyone else here. So the first one is meet more customers. Like 
I am not doing my job if on a weekly basis I am not meeting with customers and prospects in a high-fidelity, synchronous phone call, coffee, whatever it might be. Um, so meet more customers, I think, is the first thing. I think there are too many marketers who are hired into businesses who are one or two or five steps removed from the customer. And that's such a dangerous position to be in. Um, the second is be bold. We spoke earlier about how you know the mediocre middle is the hardest place to be. You know, you need to fight for the ability to be a bit bold, fight for the trust and the confidence to be a bit bold. Um, and so if I think of the, the last you know year or two of Paddle, we've made a big acquisition. We've, you know, we've, we've sent, we did a documentary about that acquisition, which we kind of you know, published. We've um, sent something into, sent a device into space to take a payment. Um, we've got another big one coming out soon that will raise a few eyebrows. Those, those kind of projects, which are the culmination of multiple months and lots of creativity, punch much harder than just doing the days in, days out every month. And so, yeah, number one, be, be customers. Number two, really be bold. Try and reach beyond the media community. Thank you. Julian, what would be your advice? Yeah, this actually the, the, the rocket project popped into my head when <laughs> you asked that question. Yeah, that was so cool. Of, that was unique. So definitely, you know, try new things and, and um, creative. But um, as you mentioned, marketing leaders, so maybe um, also keeping in mind that then marketing skills, if we're talking about leadership, are only part of the job. And the bigger your team mm -hmm. gets, you know, the less you'll actually be working in marketing. You know? And so leadership skills become uh, really important so how to lead inspire how to delegate something i for example had to learn how to mentor so that would be some advice to also focus on these on, on this skill set which which is different and to also ask yourself do i want to be a leader slash then that automatically often comes with being a manager and less being down the trenches and actually doing this stuff and, and more um being there for the team and let you know the team shine and just then at the end your job is to support them as much as possible um, to do their best to do it. yeah okay thank you so much i mean uh it's been great listening to you I, i didn't want to comment on anything i just wanted to to sit here and listen to you guys and uh, yeah so thank you for all your insights and all the information that you shared we got quite a few comments and quite a few agreements with you from the audience so i hope i really hope we can do it again sometime and uh, maybe even live at some point so again thank you for being here and uh, yeah and take care cool thank you so much for having me lovely to be with you julian thanks anna and would be more than happy to do it anytime you want thanks so much likewise sure. thank you for your insights andrew thank you anna thank you all right bye